Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. It's WBZ or Jay talking with live midnight 2-5. Marijuana is legal in Massachusetts, both medically and recreationally. The, uh, the government used to lock you up. Now the government takes a cut. How about that? A lot of people smoking marijuana. I walked by a dispensary the other night. There are two different lines. The, the one big long line for... Uh, folks who'd called ahead, and the other big long line for folks who hadn't. And I heard they do 2,500 people a day, some days. And that's just one place. I can't, I cannot be sure of that number, but I've seen the lines and it makes sense. A lot of people smoking marijuana, eating marijuana, vaping flour and byproducts, but not everybody's on board. Our guest, Alex Berenson, is not so on board. He's written a, a book called Tell Your Children. Tell your children the truth. What's the truth, Alex? Uh, the truth is that uh, cannabis is a, is a recreational intoxicant with a lot of negative side effects. Uh, and it's been sold in this country for the last 20 years as medicine and completely benign and much safer than alcohol. Uh, and none of those things are true. Um, you know, I, I was very glad about 10 days ago when the Surgeon General of the United States warned uh, teenagers and pregnant women and breastfeeding women against using because uh, of its really because of its potential neurotoxicity, which is very real and has been completely uh, downplayed as we've legalized this drug. Have you always felt this way or did something happen? Uh, what happened was I looked at the research. So I uh, used to be a reporter for the New York Times. I was uh, really ever since I graduated college, I was a reporter for about 15 years, an investigative reporter most of that time uh, for the Times, and a business reporter, too. You know, I, I spent a lot of time covering the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and um, I left that in about 2010, uh, got married became a, a novelist, a spy novelist. In fact, I wrote my first couple of uh, novels before I left the Times, and they did pretty well, which is why I decided to leave. And um, my wife is a psychiatrist. In fact, she got some of her training in Boston. Um, she's a forensic psychiatrist, and that means she deals with the criminally mentally ill. Uh, so she she helps you know decide, hey, can this person be released, or is this person you know so dangerous that uh, that he needs to be 
uh, locked up in a forensic hospital, you know, basically forever or for a long time. And she would tell me about the cases that she'd seen. And, uh, and by the way, I really had no position on marijuana legalization. I lived in New York State, which is where I still live, um, uh, you know, not a place like Colorado or Washington or Massachusetts. I, you know, I, I didn't I didn't really particularly care. Um, uh, and so uh, so she would say to me, you know, this person committed this terrible crime and um, and he was smoking. And, you know, this this woman did, you know, hurt her family or, or, or you know, or or, uh, you know, set fire to something. And she had been using for years, using cannabis, and uh, became, you know, schizophrenic, became chronically mentally ill, and then committed this crime. And uh, and I and I said to her, you know, that that kind of sounds like reefer madness to me. That that sounds like nonsense. Uh, you know, and I was really basically just mansplaining. I had no idea. Uh, she was the one who saw, who saw the patients, and she was also the one who'd done all the research, uh, you know, or read all the research, really. And finally, she said to me, you know, you should go look at the papers because marijuana really does cause schizophrenia. And and I said, I said, I don't really believe that. And she, you know, she basically said, why don't you stop talking and do some work? And I did. And this was in 2016, 2017. And and I was stunned by how much research there is and how good it is showing that marijuana, especially if you use as a teenager, especially if you use the newer, higher potency stuff, especially if you start using, unfortunately, when you're 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, as opposed to, let's say, 21, 22, how dangerous it can really be to the brain. And, you know, this is exactly what the Surgeon General has just has just said, too. So um, so I thought two things. One, this is amazing. It's amazing that there's so much out there on this. And two, why doesn't anybody know this? Why when I mean, I was a reporter for The New York Times who covered the drug industry and wrote stories about drugs for the mentally ill. And I had zero idea about this. Why, why don't we know? What has the industry done to make it so that we don't know? And that's, and that's where the book came from. Did the industry do anything to make it so that we don't know? Oh, yeah. As, you know, as I say and tell your children, they, they, there's, been a, there's been two. When we talk about the industry, we really need to, to separate into two things, right? One is the for-profit industry that has come in the wake of legalization, right? And that's, and that's relatively new. And those people obviously like Big Tobacco. I call them Psychosis Inc. But like Big Tobacco, Psychosis Inc. has a very strong profit motive in hiding this and in marketing marijuana as safe. And, you know, and, and, you know I, I, don't, I haven't seen the billboards in Massachusetts, although, I, you know, I, I know that there is public advertising. Um, but, you know, I was in San Francisco a year or so ago, and I saw just how heavily the drug is, is advertised there. Um, but uh, so, so there's the for-profit industry. But then there's, there's what the nonprofit, you know, they call themselves drug reformers or drug policy experts. What they mostly are is legalizers, right? Whether, you know, for the most, they're openly in favor of legalizing cannabis, and usually, and with other drugs, with psychedelics, they might be openly in favor. With the opioids, they talk more about harm reduction, decriminalization. Some of them will say that all drugs should be legal. Um, but with cannabis, they'll definitely openly favor legalization. And those people, because they know that this psychosis issue, this schizophrenia issue, this issue of severe mental illness is dangerous to the legalization of cannabis, they do everything they can to pretend it isn't real. And by, by the way... 
you can you can agree with me about this, agree with the Surgeon General of the United States about this, and still say, hey, we think cannabis should be legal. Alcohol is legal. Tobacco is legal. Those drugs have really serious side effects, and you know, tobacco kills a lot of people, and they're and and they're legal. But the but the but the people in the nonprofit industry or industry, the people in the nonprofit advocacy community, won't admit the truth, and that's what really bugs me about them. It's not. It's not that they want the drug to be legal. It's that they lie about its risks. How much cannabis do you need to consume before it gets dangerous in terms of schizophrenia? So that's a really good question. Uh, and I don't think we have a number on that. Uh, uh, cannabis can clearly cause psychosis, short-term psychotic episodes in almost anybody. Um, you know, a lot. You can use it just once and wind up having panic attacks, having uh, you know delusions, having strange thoughts. You you can use just once really and wind up in the hospital for a short period of time. And by the way, if that happens to you, that's a really dangerous sign. You really probably shouldn't continue to use it. In terms of schizophrenia, which is a you know a permanent mental illness, um, uh, which you know you would continue to have these negative effects whether or not you're using cannabis. Uh, that that risk is clearly much much lower. So I don't want to overstate it. Most people who use cannabis, um, even if they start when they're when they're very young, and even if they use heavily, are not going to develop schizophrenia. But it looks like if you start using in your teens, and if you use heavily, you might have an increased risk of schizophrenia um, or other psychotic disorders, permanent psychotic disorders. That's that's somewhere between. Uh, two and five times your baseline risk. So it might be as much as one person in 20 who uses all the time uh, as a teen will ultimately develop a severe uh, mental illness. Yeah, I'm glad you um, kind of cla you know, clarified that because yes. here in Reuters it says 14.6% they use cannabis in the past year. I don't know how, how many, what percent are heavy users, but only about 1% of people in the United States are schizophrenic. So I, That's right. So, so, I mean, look, that, that's a good thing, right? Because our, our, neither our legal nor our mental health system could take, you know, 5% of the country becoming mentally ill all at once. It's not, it, you know, that would, that would destroy, really would destroy the country. This is, a, this is a relatively small fraction of people use cannabis that way, and then a relatively small fraction of people are going to become severely mentally ill. So this is sort of a slow-motion crisis. But that's not to say it's not real. When you, when you, you can say, okay, it's a relatively small number of people on a percentage basis, or you can say we're looking probably at hundreds of thousands of people ultimately becoming really severely mentally ill and destroying their lives because of this. The truth about marijuana, the truth about marijuana, mental illness, and violence. Alex, do they know what <laughs> causes it? What causes? Yeah, like what is the actual action of the can THC on neuro neurology? So, so we yes. So uh, as the uh, as the cannabis uh, advocates love to tell you, uh, we have something called the endocannabinoid system. Uh, there are two main classes of receptors: the CB1 and the CB2 receptors. Uh, the CB1 receptors are in our brain. Mainly, the CB2 receptors are elsewhere, uh, and uh, THC, which is the main psychoactive uh, chemical in cannabis, uh, affects uh, both uh, uh, CBD, which you're, you know, people may have heard a lot about, 
uh, affects mainly the CB2 receptor and doesn't bond with the CB1 receptor. Anyway, it turns out that when you uh, when you use cannabis, when you when you use THC, uh, you know the, the THC bonds with the CB1 receptor in your brain, and it causes all these effects that uh, that we all know about, right? It uh, it uh, it distorts your perception of time. It makes you euphoric. Uh, it dissociates you a little bit. Uh, it sensitizes you to sort of music. Uh, you know, it's an aphrodisiac for many people. There's there's lots of reasons people use THC. It makes them feel good. Um, uh, for a lot of people, it in in low doses, it seems to perhaps reduce anxiety in the short term, but you get a rebound effect with that. Um, uh, and for for some people, a fairly large number of people, medium to high doses of THC, and for some people, really low doses of THC too, can increase your paranoia. Um, and, you know, one of the really interesting things that, that I want to see, um, you know, over the, over the last 50 or 75 years, really even after Prohibition it was, we started to, to hear from people who had problems with alcohol, right? We, we prohibited alcohol. It, you know, it didn't really work. We wound up legalizing it again. And then after that, AA started. After that, um, you know, uh, there's a famous book called The Lost Weekend that came out. And people who, who were alcoholics started to talk about why they were alcoholics and what the drug did for them. And it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just a moral crusade. It was, it was, let's talk about what this drug does and how it feels. And we haven't really gotten that with cannabis. We, the only, you know, the only people who talk about it are people, at least at this point, who, you know, really like it. And some of those people seem to be addicts, at least to me, from the outside, they use a ton and they talk, you know, it seems to be the focus of their lives in an unhealthy way. But they, but they haven't. We, we don't have the person who's written the book that says, "I had pro-, at least as far as I know, I, I really had problems with this drug, and here's why I continued to use it." So, uh, you know, I've heard from some of those people in since my book came out, since "Tell Your Children" came out, but we haven't gotten that memoir. So, I think there's a, you know, I think as as the use of this drug grows and it is continuing to grow in the United States to levels really that we've never seen in this country, at least in terms of the high potency stuff. Um, I think we're going to get that. So while you can't say that everyone who smokes cannabis is going to become schizophrenic, would no, you certainly not? Would you say that anyone who is schizophrenic and a heavy user of cannabis ought to stop and see what happens? Oh yes, uh, absolutely. Um, and it, and it goes beyond that. I mean, any psychiatrist would tell you that. Uh, any 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 decent psychiatrist would would tell you that. But it's quite clear that if you if you have a diagnosed severe mental illness and you use cannabis, uh, your outcomes are much worse. You're much more likely to be hospitalized again. Uh, you're, 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 you're much more likely to commit violence than if you don't use. Um, cannabis for people who have a known mental illness is a, uh, I, and I'm not talking about mild depression. I'm talking again about the severe psychotic uh, illnesses, bipolar disorder with psychosis, depression with psychosis, schizophrenia. The, the, if you have one of those things, you should absolutely not be using this drug. And by the way, unfortunately, those people tend to be very heavy users. They, they tend to be heavy drug users in general, and cannabis is the drug they use the most. And the industry says, oh, they're self-medicating. And the question is, I mean, and it's a very obvious question, if they're self-medicating, how come their outcomes are so much worse than the people who don't use? Um, here's another, you know, a warning that the, that the industry will not, uh, you know, when I proposed this a few months ago, 
the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a you know which is a, a group that supports full legalization, I said, how about a warning to people? If you have a you know if you have a first degree relative, if your mother or father or brother or sister uh, you know has a psychotic disorder, you shouldn't use this. How about a warning that if you ever have wound up in the hospital in the ER after using you certainly shouldn't use this. And, and they wouldn't say, hey, these are good ideas. Let's talk about these warning labels. They, they don't want to acknowledge this as a problem. And I think the reason is if you, if you draw a, a line of drugs, legal and illegal, and you talk about sort of societal acceptance of them, I, I think we'd all agree that on one end would be caffeine. Everyone, you know, everyone agrees that caffeine is a, you know, is a pretty safe drug. Almost tons and tons of people use it. And it's not because caffeine isn't addictive. You can certainly get, go into caffeine withdrawal. It's because, you know, caffeine is a relatively mild stimulant. And then somewhere in the middle, you'd have something like cocaine. Uh, you know, uh, cocaine is not a, you know, a lot of people don't like cocaine. Cocaine is, uh, you know, is a, is, is a pretty marginal drug at this point, but, uh, but it's not, it's not PCP, right? So PCP would be a drug that is despised. Nobody, nobody would admit to using PCP. Anyway, if you, if you do that, if you do that, and opiates are also, you know, they're sort of in the middle with cocaine probably. If you do that, if you draw that sort of diagonal line for, with caffeine on one end and PCP on the other end, and you, and you draw a line of drugs propensity to cause psychosis and severe mental illness, those two lines will stack up almost exactly. So, uh, you know, caffeine, tobacco, alcohol, then in the middle you have sort of the strong stimulants, cocaine, methamphetamine, the opioids, and at the high end you have sort of PCP and LSD. The marijuana really belongs in terms of, I'm not talking about its overall uh, negativity, but I'm talking about specifically about its propensity to cause psychosis, belongs at the, at the high end of that spectrum. I'd be curious. I'd be curious. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. No, how many mass shooters are. Have- had a lot of caffeine before this year because I, I, th- I think I'm serious. Caffeine may be an under, underestimated causer of bad behavior because you, you know how well, it, it, can pro- you, it can make you, it can make you kind of crabby. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it doesn't have an effect on violent behavior. That's just no, that's no. A, uh, the stimulus, stimulants in general can cause violent behavior. There's no question. But just to go back to this for one second, if so the so the so the the industry spent a lot of time saying you know marijuana is really safe, but if you if if they're going to admit that it can cause psychosis, which is so scary for people, then then that they know they know that's going to affect the public perception of the drug, right. and that's why they hate me, and that's why they hate tell your children they they cannot stand me or the book. Okay, you know, for a couple more minutes before this next break, can we use that those minutes to? Go back to the actual action of it. We talked about the endocannabinoid system and the THC, but they're kind of tailed off in my understanding of the actual action that causes the psychosis. So, well, okay. So this is a, this is a really complicated, interesting issue. Psychiatrists have spent 
a hundred years trying to figure out psychosis. This really comes, you know, it cuts the heart of what consciousness is, how the brain perceives reality. And even now, if you give somebody, uh, you know, with psychosis a brain scan, yeah, you can point to sort of small changes in the structures of their brain, but, but this is not a disease you can diagnose that way. Whether or not the person is a pot smoker, I mean, a cannabis user, I, you, you can only diagnose psychosis clinically. So the person either tells you, I'm hearing voices, I'm having hallucinations, I'm having these delusional thoughts I can't control, or the person behaves in such a way that it's obvious that they are having this problem. And by the way, you know, this is a lot of what psychiatrists get trained to do, especially psychiatrists like my wife. Um, you know, is the person pretending to be delusional or is he or she actually delusional? And, it, and, and they, get, they get very skilled at this. It's pretty hard to fool a psychiatrist who's been trained. So, so what I'm trying to say really is that, is that if you're going to ask me how CBD, how affecting the CB, the, 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 CB, the endocannabinoid receptors, the CB1 receptors in the brain causes psychosis, I will tell you we don't know. Tell your children, tell your children the truth about marijuana and the downsides. You may want to pick this book up because we're not going to be able to get through all of it here in this hour. And if anyone wants to call us, chime in, if you will, 617-254-1030, you might say, I always knew there was something wrong with it. Or you might say, that's hogwash, that's balderdash. Well, you can you can say either. I'm, I'm, Alex is pretty uh, studied up on this and I'm sure he'll be able to respond to you answer your question whatever and we were kind of f finishing up trying to understand the actual action of the THC on the body and and the mind the body is the mind in a way and why it causes some people to, to experience psychosis and you were talking about how difficult it is to actually diagnose real psychosis so yeah. So, uh, so, you, and and you like a like a good host, uh, pinned me down on something uh, where I was sort of trying to uh, to skim the truth uh, a, a little bit. Not because not because the truth is actually in any way unfavorable to what I'm saying, but just because it is so complicated. Um, but but so the so the truth is that we don't know biologically in the same way. So we know how, you know, the tars and tobacco mess up the DNA in your lung cells, and that ultimately leads to lung cancer. We don't know exactly how THC deranges the CB1 uh, receptors or the endocannabinoid system to cause psychosis, because we don't know what psychosis actually is in the brain. We, we, we don't really know how to treat it, and we can't really diagnose it from any kind of chemical uh, test or brain scan. We just know that it exists. So, so this isn't really an issue around cannabis. This is an issue around psychiatry and, and the workings of the brain, right? It's really amazing how little, uh, you know, people talk about cancer and how hard it is to treat cancer, and that's certainly true. But we are so far ahead in terms of understanding the biological mechanisms of something like cancer, much less, much less heart disease, which we really understand, compared to psychosis, where the brain, I mean, the brain really is a black box, because again, we're talking about, we're talking about consciousness, we're talking about something that is at the fundamental heart of, you know, our interaction with the universe. And, and, uh, and we just don't have a great understanding there. And that's why, that's why I can't say to you, okay, THC does this, 
that causes this exact cascade, and that's what causes psychosis, because we just don't know. One thing that would be interesting, if they could break down the research to see if maybe there's something besides THC in in the in the smoke or however it's delivered that causes it, and maybe there's a difference in uh, the instance of psychosis depending on the delivery, whether you eat it or ingest it, that might give them a, some more clues. Yes. I, uh, by the way, it does seem clear that if you, um, if you ingest THC as opposed to, to smoking it, um, you're at higher risk. Interesting. Uh, and that's because THC, if you ingest it, well, there's two reasons. One is if you ingest it, it's processed by the liver into something called uh, Delta 11 THC, um, uh, and that is more psychoactive than a Delta 9 THC. Um, and the other reason is, and you know, I think everybody who's used edibles knows this. Um, once you once you take an edible, you can't really untake it. You can't you can't titrate it. Is the is really the scientific the psychiatric word for it? So if you're smoking and you get pretty high, you might say, okay, I'm high enough. I don't need to smoke anymore. If you take an edible. Uh, you're sort of along for the ride. And especially if you take an edible, you don't feel anything for an hour or so. You say, hey, I better take some more. And all of a sudden, it happens all the time. Which you <laughs> should not do. You should self-titrate, if you will. You take a small, a really, really, really small amount. If nothing happens, don't take any more that day. And if you t- tomorrow, try a little more until you get to where you're comfortable. But is there um, a case for cannabis in spite of the downsides because all drugs have side effects some of them have really really bad side effects you listen to the them do the drug commercials on television and they'll spend five seconds talking about the drug and 55 seconds talking about all the bad stuff that can happen and there are some that's that swear that they have avoided the pitfalls of opioids due to cannabis do do you see a value not really, not not as medicine. Okay, so so it, here's here's the value to these. And there's it's a recreational intoxicant. So if you want to get high because you like being high, for the same reason you know that people who want to you know, use alcohol like being drunk, or you know, or be, or being let's say moderately intoxicated. Not everybody has to get drunk, and not everybody has to get you know so high on cannabis they can't function. Um, if if you want to if you want to use for that reason, then go ahead. You know, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, look, I drink. I I don't use cannabis, but I understand that there are going to be people out there who can use it moderately and recreationally and enjoy it. And that's totally. I mean, is is it the best thing in the world? No, but is it fine? Basically, yes, it's fine. The problem comes putting aside the the psychosis issue. Uh, the problem comes in the way that this drug has been marketed. Okay, it's been marketed for the last 20 years as medicine. It's not medicine. Okay, alcohol isn't medicine, and cannabis isn't medicine. And and when you look at the at the stuff that it is sold for, uh, you know, whether CBD or THC, um, or you know, smokable cannabis, there's almost no evidence to support most of the stuff it's been sold for. And what particularly infuriates me is that it gets sold to people as a treatment for mild psychiatric conditions. If you're depressed, use cannabis, you'll feel better. If you're anxious, use cannabis, you'll feel better. If you're having problems parenting because it's so stressful for you, use cannabis, you'll feel better. That is not why people should use this drug. It's a terrible idea. 
Okay. If you use, if you're depressed and you use cocaine for a week, you'll feel better for the week. It does not mean that using cocaine is a good idea to treat depression long term. Okay. Using recreational drugs to treat depression in a, or anxiety or any psychiatric condition is almost always a mistake. Now, the SSRIs are a slightly different case. They don't get anybody high. They, they, you know, they, they really, you can use them indefinitely, and they don't really have long-term negative consequences for most people. But for recreational drugs, and by the way, I'm including alcohol in this, using those things to treat psychiatric conditions, even mild ones, is a mistake. And for the cannabis industry to promote this drug as something other than what it is, which is a recreational intoxicant, makes me, it infuriates me. And I say this clearly in the book. And this is another reason they don't like the book. Okay. Uh, I see a lot of, a lot of sort of anecdotal research in the book. Also, I see talk about clinical real research. A lot of it seems anecdotal and it, it seems to be things like, well, there are more people, there's more psychosis now and more people are smoking cannabis, that kind of thing. I don't see a lot of times a cause and effect relationship established. And in a lot of what I see as evidence, some of it, this, the, the serious study, yes, but maybe I'm reading this out of context or something and I didn't understand, but this is from the book on page 217. Christian Pearson, 10 and Arizona boy, allegedly beaten and burned to death by his mother and stepfather in 2017. His mother told police officers she had just come home from medical marijuana dispensary when she found him severely injured. I mean, maybe she did, but there's no evidence of cause and effect there. Giovanni Diaz, 15, Florida, teen, allegedly beaten to death with a baseball bat by his 16-year-old, on and on and on. And he, once they arrived, the, 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 uh, the dealer who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, killed them. But it's, again, not a evidence of cause and effect. Okay, so, so we're talking about two different things here. Um, uh, there's the cannabis severe mental illness link, uh, and there's nothing but scientific evidence in the book on that. You know, the, the first, so the book is really divided into three parts, right? The first is the history of how we got to where we are. The second part is the cannabis psychosis link, um, and, you know, I literally quote uh, dozens of scientific studies on this issue. It's actually, if anything, I think I needed to make it uh, a, a bit more anecdotal because I think the science is hard for people. And I tried my best to, you know, to make it accessible. But but I, I'm, I'm talking about scientific research that goes back uh, 50 years or more. And really, the first very important study came out in 1987 in The Lancet, which is a major British medical journal uh it covered fifty thousand people and sort of on and on and on from there so i would i would i would i would completely disagree with you that the book uh is anecdote driven um and certainly on the issue of cannabis and psychosis as for cannabis and violence i i i wouldn't agree with you that the book is anecdote driven but what i would agree with you is that there isn't as much evidence that cannabis can directly cause violence what i say in the book is we know cannabis can cause psychosis. We know this. We know independently, putting aside what causes psychosis, that psychosis can cause violence. This is, unfortunately, this is something that the mental illness advocacy community doesn't like to talk about, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Severe psychosis 
Um, severe mental illness is highly correlated with extreme violence. And I think we all know this, right? I think if you are standing on a platform of the T and the train is coming in and on the one side of the platform is a, is a guy who's talking to himself and his clothes are, you know, disheveled and he's wearing, and he's reading the Bible backwards. Um, and on the other side of the platform is an old lady. You walk away from the guy who's disheveled and you walk towards the old lady, not because you know he's going to do anything to you, but because you know intuitively that the risk of the person with psychosis is higher than the old lady. So, so we know this. So we know cannabis can cause psychosis. We know psychosis can cause violence. The question is, can cannabis cause violence? Are there pharmacological uh, properties of cannabis that can lead to violence? And unfortunately, the answer to that question appears to be yes. And what's, what's the mechanism? The mechanism is that cannabis can cause paranoia and delusions, and it can do that in healthy people. So, so, they, so, so the, the, the pages that you reference are actually very close to the end of the book, after I've gone over some of the scientific evidence and the statistics showing how much cannabis use is linked um, statistically to violence. Now, that doesn't mean that cannabis causes violence all by itself. Well, it does mean that there's a lot of cannabis users out there committing violence. And that goes against everything we've been told about this drug really for the last 50 years. We've been told that cannabis, all you're going to murder is a bunch of, is a bag of Doritos if you get high. But unfortunately, that's not true. That doesn't mean all by itself that cannabis has caused those murders, but it is something that we should look at and think about. That's what the book says. Any, uh, I, it, is it helpful when trying to figure out why there's this connection when you, when you see that it seems to be more, that young people seem to be more vulnerable to this? What, what is it about being young that makes you more vulnerable, and does that help you understand the mechanism? Well, sure. I mean, well, young people are more likely to commit violence anyway, right? I mean, much more likely. That's one of the being male, being young. Unfortunately, these are these are known uh, drivers of violence, um, and young people are also more likely to use all drugs, right? I, I, you know, and that's both societal and personal, right? I mean, if once you get married, once you have a you know a job, your responsibilities, it becomes harder to use drugs, and once you have children, it becomes harder to use drugs. Um, I mean, uh, one of the things that I truly object to uh, in the in the recent legalization efforts is this effort to sell cannabis as a parenting aid. I think that's a horrible idea. Cannabis is a drug at its best. OK, it it helps people dissociate from the world and it enhances their sensations. And it's sort of it's sort of an emotion blunter. Right. If you think about alcohol, alcohol kind of dulls your sensations, but it, but it can like enhance your emotions. Yeah. And. And cannabis is the opposite. Cannabis makes, you know, it makes music sound cooler. It makes food taste better, but it also sort of dissociates you from the world. And if you think about raising young children, there are a tremendous amount of work and there can be tremendously difficult. And you sort of depend on your emotional connection to them, not to, you know, not to get upset with them sometimes. And, and so, and so a drug that dulls your emotional state is not a good drug when young children are around. And, 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 I will, and I will say this, and people hate it when I say it, but it is true. People who use cannabis, cannabis users account for a tremendously disproportionate fraction of the violence against young children in the United States. They, these statistics are absolutely beyond dispute on that.
Okay, well, let's. Uh, we're going to talk to Gail in New Hampshire after this final break, and I'd love to talk to you a little bit about your novels as well. We'll continue with Alex, Alex Baronson for another short segment after this on WBZ. Something's on your mind. You need to talk. Try the radio. Jay talking. Bradley Jay. Right until dawn. WBZ News Radio 10:30. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Would you put the radio on? Sure. I'm coming up to talk. He wants to talk. Let's see what he has to say. Let's turn into a radio show. It's a beautiful night. I love this place at night. Jay talking with Bradley Jay. There's no wrong in him. WBZ News Radio 1030. BZ, for some time now, we've been hearing cannabis is kind of a panacea, and it's good to get another angle on that, a little pushback on that. Alex Berenson pushes back. Tell your children. And uh, this book's probably in the bookstores and online. Tell your children the truth about marijuana, mental illness, and violence. We have Gail in New Hampshire. Up in the great granite state. By the way, Alex, I'm guessing you spent some time around here. I could tell because you said the tea. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, um, well, you know, I met my wife in uh, in Boston, actually, on book tour for my uh, for my first novel. And, you know, I've obviously been back. I was back actually just a, few, a couple of months ago to be at an event with um, the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, Dr. Nora Volkall. And, and honestly, much of the best research into uh, cannabis and psychosis being done in the U.S. is being done out of that little university uh, uh, on the on the Charles, um, uh, whose name I can't mention because I went to Yale. So, okay. but uh, but <laughs> I, get it. I, I wonder if they they're going to work on the tea because if they do, the research is considerably slower because the the tea <laughs> is considerably slower. We have Gail in New Hampshire. Hi, Gail. Hi. What do you think, Gail? Hi. Well, I definitely, I'm 58 years old now, but I started smoking pot when I was 13. Well, 13 or 14, smoked it pretty heavily. And I loved it at first, and then it started making me really paranoid. And um, and I continued smoking it, thinking, you know, oh, I should be able to get over this, you know, kind of trying to will the paranoia away because I, I had loved it so much at the beginning when it just made me feel silly and and, you know, laugh a lot. Um, so I guess my question to you is, so I eventually stopped, but I, I have always felt like since then um, I had residual, I think I had thought blocking that happened then, and I think I, I continued with that. And I really feel like it affected me long-term as far as anxiety and uh, susceptibility to anxiety and 
and feelings of paranoia, as well as I don't feel like I've ever been as intelligent as I was before I started smoking. You, you may never have been that intelligent. You need to factor that possibility. <laughs> No, and, no, and also, no, no, no. you may you may feel paranoia now, but there's no. You got to try to find some cause and effect. You, I mean, I would, I, you know, I I think Gail. First of all, I'm really glad you stopped when you did. I think, I think your story is is quite common, um, and and I've heard it a bunch, and I. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry that that happened, but glad you stopped. I don't know how many years you used for. You may have been on a path that would have ultimately, and you, it sounds like you, you, you know, you're not, uh, you don't have any diagnosable psychotic illness. But there are many people out there who have essentially subclinical symptoms of of psychosis. I mean, I, I think I think that's actually quite common. You know, as a as, as the head of the National Institute on Mental Health said to me once upon a time, he said there are lots of people out there with strange ideas, um, and you know, and most of them function pretty well. You can you can have strange thoughts and get by as long as as long as you're in, you know able to work and able to sort of manage your anxiety. But I, I suspect from what you say, and and you know, I've never met you, and and I'm not a psychiatrist, so take it with a grain of salt. But I suspect what what, what you're saying is true that cannabis was not good for you, that it left you with some, some uh, you know, long-term negative effects, and you've managed those over the years, it sounds like. Thanks, Gail. Yes, I, yeah, I'm pretty, yeah. Um, but anyway, no, and what about long-term effects as far as thought blocking? Have you ever heard of I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly what you mean. Anxiety is a more, uh, uh, you know, sort of more, of more obvious term, so, I, uh, so thought blocking, it's not clear to me what you mean, but, but, but when you, the anxiety alone would say, would say to me, and the way you sort of describe this, as that's, that's not an uncommon thing to happen for people who use long-term, that, that the paranoia builds up slowly, the anxiety builds up slowly. Fortunately, you were smart enough to stop, and so you're left with some residual effects, but, but they're not terrible, and you're managing them. Thanks, Gail. Appreciate it. Let's... Uh... Talk about your novels for a couple of minutes. You, you, sure. You did very well. They won awards. You sold a bunch. Good for you. Uh, tell, tell us about them and how, how did you, so, uh, what about your novels makes them good? How did you do it? Um, so, uh, so I've written 12 novels. They all feature the same main character. His name is John Wells. And uh, the first one was called The Faithful Spy. Uh, they're all in the sort of CIA thriller espionage genre. Um, I think... I think the first one especially is so good and feels so authentic because I actually was in Iraq as a correspondent for the New York Times a couple of times um, in 2003 and 2004, and that helped me, uh, you know, it, it built an authenticity to the books um, that, uh, that, that sort of remained. And, um, and really the reason that I quit the Times is one day I woke up in 2008 after the Faithful Spy came out, it came out in hardcover in 2006. It came out in paperback in 2008, and it, there it was, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And I thought to myself, you know what, this might actually be a future for me. I, you know, it's possible that I'm not going to be a newspaper reporter forever, and um, and that's what happened. Um, but but you know, the books, uh, there's a, you know, Wells is the Wells is the guy that I think we'd all like to be. Um, you know, he's tough. He's, he's, he's smart. He's, you know, he's violent, but, but generally, uh, not overly violent except when he has to be. 
Um, I'd say he carries, you know, there are people out there who complain that he's a little bit too introspective, that he's not sort of just enough of a he-man bully, but you write the hero who, who, you know, I think in some ways is your idyllic, is your ideal version of yourself. And when people ask me about John Wells, I say, well, he's smarter than I, well, not smarter. He's tougher than I could ever be. He's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a real man and he carries these burdens in a way that most of us couldn't. And I, so, you know, so that's who he is. And people respond to that. I love spy stuff. Just uh, two guys talking. Did you happen to see the spy the, the story of the Israeli spy Ellie Cohen, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, is new on Netflix, I think. I have not. Oh. I have not. Is it, is it good? I think you're going to like it. It's, the critics call it Midland, and I would say that the first half is, I like the first half a lot, and then the second half not so much. But, you know, you're, you're a spy guy. You're probably going to like it. All right, brother. I will. I will look it up. It's he. the The job done by Sasha Baron Cohen is really good. It's nothing like, like you would expect. He did. So, in other words, he's he's really not playing Borat. He's really no, no, no. Uh, this is totally uh, straight. This is a true, true oh, mostly true story. Completely different thing. Thanks a lot. Great, great, smart guy. Guest. Tell your children. Bradley, thank you so much for having me and letting me talk at length. I, I you know, I feel like sometimes I have to rush and cram in these points, and I and I do appreciate it. And I hope people will go out and and you know check out the book. X. Me too. It's WBZ. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.